I am Brother Cornell West, and this is Hip Hop Can Save America. Peace and love, everybody. It's your man, Manny Faces. Just wanted to let you know that Hip Hop Can Save America is now available as a live stream show every Monday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. You can find it at hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Excerpts from that show will be played here on the audio feed, so you'll still get the good interviews that you've been used to. But check out the live stream and check out my free Substack newsletter at mannyfaces.substack.com. That's filled with all kinds of stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and generally hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. For everything hip-hop can save America, hiphopcansaveamerica.com. For everything Manny Faces, mannyfaces.com. And if you find value in this work, you can support it. We'd love to have you aboard as a supporter at patreon.com slash mannyfaces. Now let's go. On this episode of the world's most important hip-hop podcast, how one nonprofit is using words and beats to make life better for youth and adults in Washington, D.C. and beyond. My name is Manny Faces. This is Hip-Hop Can Save America. Let's go. The thing about hip-hop... Uh, today is it's smart it's insightful the, the way that they can communicate uh, a complex message in a very short space is is remarkable and a lot of these kids they're not going to be reading the new york times that's not how they're getting their information so hip hop didn't invent anything, but hip hop reinvented everything. This is Baby Girl Faces, and this episode is brought to you by Brianna C, Steffi, Toast, Squish One, Jesse G, Mark E, Silent Night, and Nicholas S. Words, Beats, and Life is a Washington, D.C.-based hip-hop nonprofit that was founded back in 2002. Their own words describe pretty perfectly what they're about. I quote, Our goal is to invest in Washington, D.C.'s creative ecosystem, to employ our extensive list of artists and creators to be living examples of what our city's creative youth can accomplish with the right tools and the best role models. We achieve this goal through our many workshops, after-school programs, concerts, and festivals. We are unapologetic advocates for the transformative power of hip-hop culture in all its forms. Now, if you know me, you know that that's definitely my kind of organization. And nothing lasts 20-plus years in hip-hop if it's not dope. Now, as skeptical as I can sometimes be toward the non-profit industrial complex and hip-hop non-profits on top of that, WBL is indeed a well-respected, well-run organization that served as a personal inspiration to me in my own work over the years. And WBL's founding executive director, Mazi Matafa, is quite simply the epitome of the kind of guest that Hip Hop Can Save America was made for. So, to be honest, this conversation was long overdue, but it had to be done now because we sit on the cusp of one of the organization's flagship events, the 2023 Words, Beats, and Life Festival, happening April 4th through the 9th. So throughout this conversation, Mozzie and I chopped it up about the organization, its roots and its evolutions, his own path to the hip-hop philanthropic world, and what the public can expect from this year's festival, including what will undoubtedly be powerful performances, plus an important conference 
Remixing the Art of Social Change. For more information on the festival, visit wblinc.org slash wblfest. And now before we get to this really great discussion, if you value these episodes, you'll notice that I'm not a big nonprofit organization, but an individual, hardworking hip-hop journalist and independent scholar. And to be honest, your support is vital for me to be able to continue to do this work with the frequency and the quality that it deserves. Please consider becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com slash mannyfaces. I also have a really good free newsletter that delivers all sorts of news and views through a innovation through hip hop lens, amplifying the work of folks like Mozzie and WBL that are out here doing good work for the culture. You can sign up for that newsletter. Again, it's free at mannyfaces.substack.com. All right, now let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Mazi Mutafa from Words, Beats, and Life. Mazi, how are you, sir? Very well, Manny. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, I'm doing all right. Scrambling, running around, wearing all the hats. I'm sure, I'm sure you know how that, uh, how that feels. This has been long overdue. I appreciate you taking out the time and uh, kicking it with me today. Oh, of course, I appreciate the invitation. I've been following your platform, your movement, the work that you've been doing across the country for years. Um, I think the last time I saw you was out in California at the Show Improve conference. Yep, sounds about right. Sounds about right. And the the uh, the stalking has been mutual. I've been following your work and the uh, work of your organization as well. On that note, why don't we tell the folks who are listening or, or watching? I've given an introduction, but give them an idea. You know how you present yourself to the world in the context of why we're here talking today. Sure. Words, Beats, and Life is an organization I started 21 years ago with uh, three other co-founders when I graduated from the University of Maryland. We're a hip-hop nonprofit based in Washington, D.C., and we talk about our work not just around a mission, but around priorities. We have five priorities, arts education, creative employment, cultural diplomacy, centering marginalized voices, and for the culture. And the idea is to try to be all the things in one organization that we know hip-hop is um, in people's lives, in people's companies, in, in people's work around the world. But to do all of that in one place is, is really what our goal is. Yeah. 21 years is a long time. Before we get to the past, let's start at the present or actually the future. Uh, let's just let people know off top what's happening in a couple of weeks uh, that you have going on in the D.C. area in regards to uh, the festival. Yeah, we're hosting our seventh annual Words, Beats and Life Festival. This will be the biggest one we've ever done. In the past, we've partnered with venues like the John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. This year, we're partnering with a lot more venues, doing 13 events in six days, which doesn't sound like a lot particularly like if you've been to things like A3C in Atlanta, where they're doing like a hundred events. Right, right. Or South weekend. by Southwest, which is happening, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. So, so it's, it's not big compared to the big boys, but it's definitely the biggest thing we've ever done. And I'm, I'm really mm. proud of the, the collection of events that showcase kind of different work. This year, we decided to have an unstated theme of jazz and poetry from a hip hop perspective. And mm. so we're doing it in April, which is Jazz and Poetry Appreciation Month. Um, instead of doing it in, in November when we normally do it for Hip Hop Appreciation Month. So we wanted to do a little something different to reach a different audience, but also to tell some different stories. Yeah, interesting. What are some of just a couple of the, you know, major, uh, they're all major, but, you know, some of the, a couple of the notable uh, events happening during that week? Yeah, I mean, there's th there are three events that I think are kind of the marquee events. One is called Jazz and Blossoms, which is going to be happening. It's a free outdoor park jam um, with Bilal as the headliner. We're also hosting an event called a Poets Mixtape on Easter Sunday that allows us to, to interview and to 
witnessed performances from notable poets from classic hip hop albums, including Jessica Care Moore, Ursula Rucker, Amir Suleiman, and um, Aisha Jaco. And then the last thing is is a an event we we used to call the Teachin. It's called Remixing the Art of Social Change. It's going to be hosted on uh, Saturday, the eighth of April, at Martin Luther King Library. And some of the folks that are going to be there include Jeff Chang, Martha Diaz, and many, many more, including the inaugural class of our fellows. We created a fellowship a year ago, and those fellows will be there presenting their their learnings from the last year um, and engaging with the larger community. We really feel like this is just a great springboard opportunity for them to meet people who are doing this work and who want to do this work um, in in an environment where they can be showcased. First of all, rumor rumor has it I may be in town, but we'll leave that till uh, to the universe. Uh, secondly, remixing social change, and I think this goes to I guess the heart of a lot of the work that that's there. What is it about all these different avenues that that your organization is focused on that seeks to kind of again even doing this a hip hop festival for a very hip hop oriented organization and movement that says no, but we're going to mix jazz and poetry into it this year. How foundational is that, and how do you how do you look at it? I mean, for me, I'll be I'll be honest, and don't tell my staff. But for me, the most important event we're hosting this festival is remixing the art of social change, and it's important for a couple of reasons. One, because I think that the knowledge component of hip hop is often undervalued. Yeah. And so, one of the things we're doing at remixing the art of social change is, is releasing a new publication. We, we we produce a lot of publications. We created the world's first peer reviewed academic journal of hip hop called Words, Beats, and Life, the Global Journal of Hip Hop. Recently, we created a, a magazine that's just about us because we felt like we're not getting enough media coverage and we need to tell longer form stories about our work. So we created a magazine called The EQ, which will be available for free at the event. But we created a brand new publication called The Rap Laureate, where we do a deep dive into the catalog of an individual artist each year. And so this year, we made the premiere issue focused on Lupe Fiasco, feeling like not only is he in line with this kind of larger jazz and poetry aesthetic, but also just a really important MC who has a catalog of work that can be brought into a classroom to be able to talk about uh, speculative fiction or, or poetry mm. or et cetera. And so looking at an MC that, that isn't just a great MC and also not just pioneer MCs, like a lot of the focus is often on important folks like Rakim or important folks like KRS, et cetera. But like, there's also this kind of not necessarily right now generation, even though he's making music right now, but yeah. like the in between those kind of pioneers, yeah. post 90s, still relevant, like 90s cats listen, but also current cats listen. So we could create a publication that's a bridge between hip hop generations. I would say, especially in hip hop 50, you know, this year, so much focus is, and rightfully so, on early stage pioneers and then folks who obviously haven't either gotten their flowers or had their stories told. In the same way that you you have to now uh, help tell some of these stories, but I think that that bridging the gap, that generational gap, uh, genre gap, you know, community culture gap, is one of the most important things that I guess advocates like you and me and you know our our work does because it's 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 showing that these things don't exist in vacuums or in in these silos, right? That all these things are connected and all these things are ongoing and important. Agreed, and and it's also deciding to focus not on on New York or California or Atlanta, but actually to look at rap music in the Midwest as the, as where we would start. It's a little unexpected, but but Lupe is a, is a really important MC for this time. And, and we thought it was really important to start off the, the inaugural laureate program focused on yeah. one of the greatest MCs of our time, 
um, knowing that each year we're going to dedicate this publication to a different MC. So we're already mm-hmm. starting to work on on next year's laureate. Um, but even that language of laureate, you know, there's mm. poet laureates. Right. We're creating the inaugural rap laureate, right. which is taking that language that says this, this is a person who does work that's of significance that you should pay attention to, who is speaking to our time, but also speaking to the future. Yeah. Um, and so even with that, at the at Remix and Art of Social Change, there'll be a panel called um, Hip Hop Futures. This will be the fourth the fourth time we've done this panel this year, in part because we want to say not only what what is kind of looking backwards at hip hop's past, but what are its multiple futures and the ways in which people are contributing to it. And I'm really excited. I'm really excited about this event in part because it is it's actually the the bringing back of something that was our first conference post our founding when. We were actually founded as a hip hop conference at the University of Maryland when I was there as the president of the Black Student Union. And so this was our first kind of foray into convening as an organization when we first started this back in 2012. And so bringing this back, and right now the, the RSVP rate looks higher than it's ever been. We've got, and, and one of the things that's changed over the course of the last you know, number of years is many more hip hop courses are being taught in our area. There's, there's five of them being taught at Bowie State University. There's multiple being taught at the University of Maryland, at American University, GW. So we're inviting also the college students who are studying hip hop in an academic environment to come and be a part of hip hop in the community, which doesn't happen often enough. Now, this is one of the things I wanted to get into uh, over the course of all these years that the organization has has been there. You you kind of touched on how it started and how it uh, morphed on since then. What have been some of the major shifts in how y'all had, I guess, originally envisioned you wanted hip hop to be viewed as. You've seen it happen over the years. You know, talk about that, more courses in the schools, the, the dichotomy of it's great to have it in, the, in, the, uh, in our legacy institutions, but we need more participants to be involved rather than just, you know, uh, folks with that, you know, academics, that kind of, uh, that kind of view. Well, I think everything is a matter of perspective, Manny, because the reality is that I think that there's real value in people in, in four-year institutions or community colleges getting access to information that they're actually interested in, not just that they're told to study. But for us, part of, the, part of what makes us, you know, I think a little different than, than many of the other organizations around the country is that we publish an academic journal of hip-hop, but we also publish poet laureates, uh, young people who are in high school. Um, we publish three books a year of, of, of poet laureates from Washington, D.C., Montgomery County, and Arlington County. We also teach classes every day of the week in the, during the school day in multiple schools, middle schools and high schools here in Washington, D.C. And we see that, that continuing to grow to include Baltimore and as far away as Richmond. But being a part of the actual school day, not just the after school day, because right. we have in school, after school and then university based instruction that we do. I think that's critical because there are many young people who decide that they're not going to go to college because they're not going to finish high school because the, the experience in high school sucks for them. Right. And it sucks not just, because, not just because they're not experiencing hip-hop, because a lot of young people aren't necessarily super into hip-hop in the ways that we think about it, right. but it sucks because their voices don't matter to the institution that they're a part of, that the experience they're having doesn't matter to the institution that they're a part of. And hip-hop becomes a way for us to build a bridge between what they're already interested in and the things we want them to pursue. Most of the young people that I interact with today Listen to a lot of people on social media who are talking down college, particularly college debt. 
But there's so many workarounds to that debt, including community college, including scholarships, including fellowship, all kinds of internships, all kinds of ways to deal with it. The problem is not the debt. The problem is the lack of a plan. Do you have a plan to deal with the cost of this thing that you want. Just like you need a plan to pay for a car or a plan to pay for rent, a plan to buy those fresh kicks, you need a plan for your academic future, for your professional future. And being a place where hip-hop artists who are working, doing the thing that they're teaching you, we become credible witnesses for what's possible. Because it's not as though, like, you know, I'm teaching a class on rap music I'm not. I'm not, by the way. I'm, but, but one of my <laughs> teachers is teaching a class on rap music, and he or she is just, you know, a bedroom rapper. Like the people who, who teach our classes are some of the most important MCs in our area. And I think that that is something that a lot of organizations don't lift up enough. The fact that yeah. they're hiring some of the best known, the best, the, the, you know, that, the whole idea of being locally, globally, what is it, globally known and locally accepted? Mm-hmm. That that they're working artists in their city right. who, in our case, our DJ instructor can invite his students to come and be the opening DJ for his set, or the MC instructor can invite students to come and be an opening act for a performance at an actual show so that yeah. they're on a real stage with a real audience that didn't show up to see them, but if they're good, they can win <laughs> right. some new fans. Um, and for us, it's also not just about teaching young people to be artists. Like We have multiple entrepreneurship initiatives specifically teaching about arts management and the business of the arts, because we don't want young people to just have a, have a hustle, but to build a career. Yeah. And I guess some of that touches on obviously all the ways that you can be in the music business and not just be the rapper or the DJ, (laughs) you know? I mean, we're, we're 21 years old and we didn't even start to do programming around rap music until like our 11th year. Right. Because when I first started, everybody who was doing hip hop based work, was just focus on the rapper because it's the place where you can make the most money. Yeah. But but one of the things I tell young people all the time, all of the artists that I know that actually make money as artists, all of them are muralists. Like mm-hmm. they get invited to festivals all over the world to paint what they imagined on people's walls and they get paid tens of thousands of dollars for a week's worth of work. All of the rappers I know, there, there are a few rappers that I know that are doing okay, like providing a life for themselves, but they're not, they're, they're working way harder than the muralists. Like yeah. if I could do, if, if I could do five murals a year at $50,000 for five weeks worth of work, right. which means the whole rest of the year, if I don't want to make more than 50,000, I could actually just be creating or just be living or just be traveling. Like that is transformational monetization of art versus spending tons of time in the studio, paying lots of producers. There's the, and I'm not saying there's no money in music. Of course right. there is. It's just a much more crowded space with a much higher hill to climb to see the monetary returns on the investment that you make in yourself as an MC. Yeah, that's deep. What was your background, your connection to hip hop growing up and through college that, that led you to start what you did in, in college that then morphed into this? What was your connection to hip hop? What, what was your vibe? Yeah, so, so this is a, is, a, is a great question. I usually point to the fact that the first album I ever I ever had purchased for me was a Fat Boys album. It was purchased as a Christmas present. Okay. Um, but that I'd spent most of my childhood. I, I I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, but my mother en- enlisted in the Air Force, so we moved to Germany. And when I moved mm-hmm. back, we moved to Washington, well, to the, the suburbs of Washington D.C., right. to Prince George's County. But I would spend all my summers in New York with my mother's family. And so when I look back at the photos of my childhood, like I was surrounded by graffiti. I remember going to park jams before I even knew what a park jam was in my 
great aunt's neighborhood, Aunt Daisy. So I was there, I was there, but I didn't really know what I was looking at. It's only really when I when I applied to go to college that I really began to understand hip hop in a different way. Like, you know, part of my childhood was visiting my father in Brooklyn and taking uh, road trips upstate because he worked for the State University in New York. And before we would go, we would go to a record shop and buy tapes to be able to listen to together on the road trip. And so I remember my father engaging with me actively in the media. But again, I wasn't mm. thinking hip hop. I was thinking right. rap music because at my mother's house, we listened to R&B. There was no rap music getting played. Right. So like there was this bridge that each of my parents was able to introduce me to art and culture based on their own levels of comfort and understanding, but also to engage with me in conversation about the things that they understood and the things that mattered to them. College really was transformational, though. I had a, a friend named Rudy Weisinger who put me on to, I can't, I think, I can't remember the name of the company, that you used to be able to buy like 10 CDs for a, for a penny or something like that. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's like, it's, it's not BMI. I forget the name of the company. Yeah, I know what you He put yeah. me on to it. And I, that's when I got my, my, my copy of Goody Mob Soul Food. When I, okay. when I started getting albums. But the whole reason why I went to college is because a friend of mine was taking a class called African-American Studies 202, Blacks in Popular Culture. And she invited me to come sit in. I had already been accepted to the University of Maryland, but I didn't really think I was going to go mm. um, because I didn't really like high school that much. And so you I thought- You yourself like, didn't have that great a relationship with high school? I mean, I actually wrote, a, I wrote an article for this, this handbook for, for Black male education. And it was called, the article was called Words, Beats, in My Life. Mm. And I wrote about my terrible educational experience from being a person that in, in middle school, they started detention for me because the principal was tired of me being sent to his office every day. Um, they literally cleared out a, a giant closet, a storage space and put me in there. And then once they got me in there, then they started sending other students to that space. So like literally a kind of you private have, prison within the you school. You invented detention. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> At that school I did. Yeah. Um, but, but part of that was I had an undiagnosed learning disability that no one ever took the time because I decided that it was much better to be thought bad than to be thought stupid. Mm. And so I acted out in classes because I wasn't achieving. That, that continued into high school, but in high school, I started playing baseball. Baseball was what kept me in high school because I wanted to play. I actually got good over time. And so in, in, that, in that article, I basically just talk about how alternative classroom spaces were what actually kept me in that traditional classroom space. And so that's what I've tried to do with Words, Beats, and Life, create an alternative classroom space for young people, young creatives in particular, or young would-be creatives who are not being fed the opportunity or presented with the opportunity to be creative in their, in their K through 12 education to do that out in the community. I'm personally really excited about this summer, we're, we're potentially going to be in four elementary schools working with third, fourth, and fifth graders. So we're, t we're working our way down because last summer we worked with kindergartners, first graders, and second graders. Mm. Super tough work. I know people mm. think it's, it's easy to work with little, little kids because they're so cute, but it's very difficult to build, the, to, to, to instill those building blocks of education at a super young age. But I envision, I envision us eventually being kindergarten through college in terms of who it is that we're serving, recognizing mm. each stage needs different things, yeah. but that hip hop is a value or, or the, the ability to express and to develop one's own identity through hip hop is a value at every single stage of human development. Actually, right now we're doing adult classes too that are part of a fee-for-service model. For our entire history, we've gotten calls from people who wanted to take a DJ class, but we were just working with high school or middle schoolers. So we're like, sorry. Right. Versus now we're actually able to allow people our age to be able to rediscover creativity that they didn't right. even 
they've never actually had the opportunity to explore. That's brilliant. That's that's all ages. Why not? That makes perfect sense. Uh, fun fact: My dad taught at SUNY Old Westbury, so State University of New York. Uh, my mm-hmm. dad was a distinguished uh, professor of sociology. Uh, so I, I get a lot of this, you know, stuff uh, through uh, through you know being under his wing <laughs> all those years at home. Uh, cool cat. I want to ask about two things. Number one, challenges that you have, or as an organization that you've had in implementing some of these uh, things. I know a lot of folks look at folks like yourself, organizations like yours, and say, wow, you know, this is such great work. We have a smaller organization, or I'm a teacher. I work in this district that's not very open to some of these ideas. Pushback against hip hop has always been the thing that we've had to deal with, obviously, for a myriad reasons. Uh, you know, we know what they are. You know, what, what are some of the challenges that you've had or some of the hindrances or hurdles and have you overcome them? What can you give to other folks who are trying to do some of the same work in other locations that can model off of some of the success you've had? Yeah, I think that a lot of things that were true 21 years ago aren't true today. Um, so I think it was much harder for us to start then, not because there weren't people blazing trails and out there doing that work, but because the leadership of, of larger institution looked a lot different. Mm. I'm 45 years old right now. Yeah. Um, the principals of schools are my age. You know, they're not and I, you know, when I started in my twenties, they were they were forty year old people who right. were much more in in a jazz and R and B space versus now. Like I engage with principals who were MCs. I was actually talking to <laughs> right. um, the head of our community foundation. She's considering joining our board of directors, and I was like, "Why on earth would you want to join our board?" And she was like, "Oh, so you don't know my story? Like I'm I'm actually a, a old school B girl, and I'm I'm currently a bedroom DJ. So nice. she DJs at home, and she she used to be a breaker." And so the idea that she's now the president of our local community foundation, hip hop generations haven't just stayed in the arts and culture spaces. They've moved into other industries and are playing leadership roles. So they have a a different degree of understanding, of empathy, of value for this work. And so like those same places that I would have gone 21 years ago, they would have been like, nope, we're just doing traditional instruments. No NPCs in here, no technology. <laughs> right. And now, like, please bring that technology in. We need to figure out how to get our young people engaged because the people in yeah. leadership are us now. Right. That, and that, that's, that's really different. That's really yeah. different. And I think yeah. that taking the time to figure out who's in leadership in the institutions that you want to engage with is critical. One. Two, if you think that starting something means you're going to be great at it, you've not been paying attention because the overwhelming majority of businesses fail. I, I, I'm here to tell the truth to the public. Uh, <laughs> we're 21 years old, but we had at least two, if not three scares where we were going to close. And the only thing that kept us open was my own willingness to eat ramen mm-hmm. and drink uh, Sprite <laughs> as my primary diet for a couple of years while we worked to build a budget, to grow a staff, to be able to do this work. Like Sacrifice has got to be part of it unless... You've got someone wealthy in your family. Like I know people who started nonprofits and their husband or their wife was wealthy and those people were their first benefactors. So so that's that's another road. But I think the struggle, you know, Frederick Douglass is still right. There is no progress without struggle. And so if you're trying to build an institution, you gotta remember that there's a reason why the thing you want to do doesn't exist. It might be because it's really hard. Right. <laughs> or the people that did it before you. Gave up too soon. Like, words beats in life, 21 years old. But after that first year, my co-founders left because they were all in undergrad and I had graduated and they wanted to move on to other things. And I feel like if I hadn't 
if together we hadn't built an idea that was big enough for other people to get excited about, it would have died too. Right. We built something like we're words, beats, and life, not not rap, production, and culture. You know, like yeah. the, even in the, the naming of it, it, it wanted to be bigger than what it started as. Like yeah. hip hop can save America, hip hop can save the world. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So like yeah. thinking about thinking about what you call yourself and and how it is that that presents an opportunity for you to manifest something. Yep. I think it's critical. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think that the other thing is that we didn't build something around what was popular. Like I said, we for the first 10 years didn't do anything with rap music because we felt like the careers we wanted to prepare young people for, the kind of events we wanted to do didn't involve rappers. And they didn't involve rappers because there were so many of them of various abilities in terms of like this is really great music or you need to do some more work. <laughs> Right. Versus, like, it's clear, it's, or at least it's clearer, when someone's re a really good DJ. Like, mm. is there a vibe in this place? Is there knowledge of music, their right. ability to blend and mix and recreate? Like, it's clear if someone is a great muralist. Like, right. A little less subjective. Exactly. Yeah. And, and there's also fewer of each of those things than there are. In True. So, right. so it, was a, it was a more niche community, but they became the foundation for the work we would do. Even the idea of publishing an academic journal of hip hop. At that time, there were fewer hip hop scholars, so creating a space for them to be able to publish that wasn't, a, you know, a traditional book yeah. had a ton of value. Yeah. Over twenty years, what are some of your favorite anecdotes, favorite instances that shows you that those ramen and sprite nights were worth? Were I mean, worth I think it? you know one of the things for me, the even though we're not talking about, I haven't talked too much about that. Arts education pieces are yeah. academy. You know, mm, yeah. this year during the Super Bowl, I was watching and um, there was a, a commercial for a major corporation that came on. And I saw one of our alumni in it as a person that's going to be a brand ambassador for them working with one of the brands in their store. I mm. think seeing some of our some of our MC and students go on to become professional musicians who are well known. I think really just seeing the impact of working with young people every day or, or on a Saturday lets me know that this this work was worth it. I also think that seeing the growth in institutions, like if we hadn't been doing that work around publishing young scholars, if we hadn't been doing that work around convening scholars, artists, and activists through Remix and Art of Social Change, if we hadn't been doing the work of creating new media, having radio shows, and et cetera, like a lot of that work, if not directly, at least indirectly, inspired people to create some of the things that they created to say that there's an audience for this. What would happen if if we created this thing for our students or for the general public, how would that impact enrollment or matriculation or our engagement of alumni? That being able to be an example, like one of the one of my greatest prides is walking into a room where someone has heard of Words, Beats, and Life and has no idea who I am, because that means that the work is bigger than the person, that the work speaks for itself and has been celebrated by people other than the people that I know, which is yeah. just it's part of what a front, like makes it easy to get up every day and go to work is like, I know that it's having the impact that it was created to have. Gotcha. Well, listen, I am testimony to that. Uh, I, like I said, I've known your work for a long time. When I started changing from doing a localized, uh, I was covering New York hip hop for you know a long time. It's how I cut my teeth in the hip hop journalism, self-publishing, making a thing and doing it world. And then coming into this world where I'm following so many people that are doing uh, using hip hop in all these innovative ways outside of ed uh, entertainment, as we know, in education and science and technology and health and wellness. Your organization was one of the first, obviously, 
to come across and your work uh, personally. So I've been inspired by it. I've known that this kind of thing, this level of engagement, this, and I mean level by, you know, not amount, but by uh, status, like how important it is to other people. It exists. It's not just me, you know, <laughs> and I'm, I'm saying, oh, there's people doing this work and there are people that feel this way. And what can I do to help that cause and tell the stories of the folks like you? And again, long overdue to have you personally here. So I appreciate that. And I appreciate all your insight and telling me all this stuff about the background and, and from whence you came. It's very inspiring. I appreciate your time, Manny. And I appreciate your work. Thank you. I appreciate that appreciation a lot. Uh, I will ask you this, though, and it's funny you say that hip-hop could save the world. That's the next podcast. I'm working in stages. This is going to be a trilogy. The third one's going to be great. But for now, hip-hop could save America. It's what I named this, uh, this podcast, and I have a few ideas as to why you know, I named it that way and, and some theories. But let me ask you in closing pretty much what I ask most folks. What do you think of when you hear that? How do you interpret that statement? And how can possibly or how should we be looking at hip-hop? when we do want to improve the lives and livelihoods and communities of folks throughout this, uh, this nation? Well, I mean, I think that ultimately hip hop is not simply the artistic elements. It's an ethos. And so this idea of looking at what is to reimagine what could be like this idea, just this idea of innovation, whether that's in technology or whether that's in art and culture, or that's in language, how will innovation transform this country? And so one of the, one of the simplest ways to think about innovation would be to look at what it is that as a, as a multicultural, multinational organization in terms of the people who come here, mm-hmm. who live here, who become citizens here, what are they bringing? Mm-hmm. What are they bringing to this larger country or to parts of the country that are not generally thought of as cultural producers? There are a number of refugee communities in the Midwest um, or in the West or in the South that are changing the language, changing the foodscape, changing the, the music of particular places. And there, there's some folks who, who resist change, who want America to be whatever it was before. But the truth is that America has been changing ever since Europeans came to this continent and, and took it from the indigenous people who were here. So if part of the, if part of the, the history of the country is, is ever evolving, like I was watching this, this clip the other day about accents in America and where they come from, Mm. And how they are connected to to, to up to European languages, um, mm. in terms of the way that um, American lang- English has evolved over time, I think that there has to be an openness on the part of younger Americans to evolve, to innovate, to look at technology and community in different ways. Some of which are inspired by communities abroad, some of which are inspired by communities that have been here for generations, but to be open to the idea that what it has been. Is not all it can be, and I think that's to me that's the ethos of hip hop. It was looking at that that set of records, those funk records or those jazz records or those pop records that your parents had, and saying, "Well, what could I do different with this?" Um, But I also think the last thing I'll say is I also think hip hop, you know, often justifiably gets accused of misogyny. I think one of the things that hip hop has also done though is make room for women to lead and to innovate and to create opportunities for others. And I feel like that has to be part of what's happening in America, making room for yeah. everyone who can contribute to the innovation and advancement of culture, technology, of industry. Um, and I feel like hip hop has, has, despite the lyrics, the industry has made room for women to be able to contribute in ways. And I think that's going to continue to evolve around trans communities, LGBTQ plus communities in general, but also yeah. young and old. You know, right. as, as those pioneers begin to 
you know, hit retirement age, but still be involved thinking about what does retirement look like? What, what role should age play in the ways in which we're engaging in community and community building? I think hip hop, hip hop has already saved America and will continue to create opportunities for its practitioners to do even more. Yeah. Well, amen to that. I think uh, it's a beautiful sentiment. Uh, I think it's all exists in the DNA of hip hop. I think all these things, you know, exist inherently in the DNA of hip hop and in the DNA, sir, in you and your organization and the work that you do. So I expect that for the next 20 something years, at the very least, you'll still be a part of making all that happen. So I thank you again for your time, for your work. And if there's anything else you want to tell the people about what's happening next or what to look out for or how to get in touch or how to stay connected to Words, Beats, and Life, let them know. Yeah, I would love for people to visit our website at wblinc.org and go to the About section. There's a, there's a document we created three years ago now called A Vision for 2040. So imagining, but also taking the steps to build a plan for how we actually make the world we want to live in over the next 20 years. Please check it out. Follow us on all socials. We're, we're on all of them under Words, Beats, and Life or, or Words, Beats, Life. Thank you, man. Right. That's what it is. Thank you again, sir. I appreciate your time. And I will be seeing you soon. Yes, sir. All right. Thanks again to Mazi Mutafa and shouts to all the good folks doing good work at Words, Beats, and Life. For more information about the organization, visit WBLINC.org and visit WBLINC.org slash WBLFest for all the details about the 2023 festival. I'll be attending the Remixing the Art of Social Change conference myself, so if anyone's listening and coming through, find me and come say hi. And once again, thank you for your attention and for your support. You can help me keep this going by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash mannyfaces. And if you like this episode, you will love my newsletter. It's full of top tier news and views on the hip hop as innovation tip. You can subscribe for free at mannyfaces.substack.com. And for more about me and my work, to book me to speak about the ways that hip hop music and culture can uplift nearly every aspect of humanity, or to send me a comment about the show, visit mannyfaces.com. As always, big shouts to our consulting producer, Summer. Check out her amazing, brilliant initiatives, Hip Hop Hacks, and the Mixtape Museum. And I'm Manny Faces. Until next time, peace and love. Once again, thanks for listening to another episode of Hip Hop Can Save America, a.k.a. the world's most important hip hop podcast. My name is Manny Faces. You can find out more about the show at hiphopcansaveamerica.com. You can watch the show now as a live stream on YouTube, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Check back for all the replays as well. The interviews from the live stream will be brought here onto the audio feed, so you always get the best of the live stream. You can also check out our Substack newsletter. It's free at mannyfaces.substack.com, filled with stories of hip-hop innovation, inspiration, and in general, hip-hop news that isn't about dumb shit. <laughs> Eternal shouts to our consulting producer, Summer McCoy. Be sure to check out her dope initiatives, Hip-Hop Hacks, and the Mixtape Museum. We'll be back soon with another dope episode, but check us out on the live stream as well. Mondays, 9 p.m. Eastern, hiphopcansaveamerica.com slash watch. Until next time, it's Many Faces wishing peace and love to you and yours.